Hey everyone, good to be back. Um, if you have your Bibles, go grab that, pause the video, go grab it, turn to Luke chapter 6. We're going to keep going in our series through the Gospel of Luke today. Um, if you want to follow along in the Version app, uh, that stuff's all there on the website. Um, so, you, you know, where you saw this video. So you can just, um, you know, follow along with the verses and quotes and all that stuff there. Um, we're going to continue today in Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. So let us just open up uh, with a word of prayer first, and then we'll dive into the text. Lord, we thank you that you um, taught your disciples uh, way back then, you know, 2,000 years ago. We thank you that they preserved this teaching, um, and they wrote this down, and that you supernaturally uh, kept it together for us to read today. And um, so, Lord, we, your people, we want to live as subjects of your kingdom, and we want to live with the kind of fruit that we read about here. And so um, we just ask that you would use this text to... Um, to move us to, to do that, Lord, um, that you would really speak to our hearts today um, through this through this passage. So we just pray this in your name. Amen. So when I'm teaching these sermons, I talk a lot about context. Context is very important. Um, when you're reading the Bible, uh, one of the things you really don't want to do is just pick out a random verse and pretend you know everything that it means, ignoring all the stuff around that verse. Um, I always say that the Bible is not the world's biggest collection of fortune cookie sayings. That's not what it is. Um, the Bible is a story and it's this organized grand narrative. And so w when we talk about context, we have to keep that stuff um, at the front of our minds while we're reading, especially reading through books. This is why we read through books. It's impossible to, to lose context when we're reading through. Um, there's a saying in kind of theological circles, right, that every heretic has his verse. Um, but nobody says, you know, every heretic has his whole chapter, right? Because you can pick out uh, all sorts of stuff to mean whatever you want it to mean. One of my favorite misused, I wouldn't say heretical, but misused verses of the Bible is Jeremiah 29, 11. You know, they sell it on uh, in all the Christian bookstores and all that cheesy stuff that uh, people hang in their house. But this verse says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. So this is a really famous verse, but very few people uh, ever talk about the context of this verse. The context of this verse is that God used the Babylonian army to judge his people. And um, for years they had uh, broken the covenant with him. And so he sent King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and they, they burned the city of Jerusalem to the ground. They destroyed the temple. They murdered a ton of people and they took the rest as uh, into captivity back to Babylon. And then God tells Jeremiah, hey, go tell the people, for I know the plans I have for you. So even during all this horrible time of destruction and death and violence, God says, I still am in charge and I still know what I am doing. And so context really makes that verse pop, right? Context really makes that verse mean something else than just some sort of generic, oh, everything's going to work out fine because God has plans for me, right? Um, and so uh, context is always king when we're interpreting the scripture. And so first, what we want to do is we're reading these passages, these couple of parts that we're going to read today. First thing we have to do is remember the context of the whole sermon. So um, last week, we talked about Jesus now has called his 12 disciples. He's got the bigger group of 72 disciples, and there's a group of women who are with him, and there's people kind of from all over who are now following Jesus. And so he sits them down and um, he gives them his kingdom manifesto. And the idea here is this is what uh, life looks like once you're already inside the kingdom. 
um, versus what your life would look like before you were in the kingdom. So this whole sermon is not how to get into the kingdom. This is what life looks like once you've already decided to call Jesus your king. So there's that context, right? We have to remember there's the context of his whole sermon and his whole ministry here, and we're at the beginning of the ministry. The second area where we have to keep the context is within the sermon, there are different units. And so we're taking three chunks today. So there's three sections. The first section is the famous love your enemies and all that stuff. We'll get to that. The second section is about, um, you know, judge not lest ye be judged. You know that part from the King James. And then the third section is where he talks about fruit. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take the third part of that first. We're going to talk about the fruit first, and then we're going to jump to the top of the sermon and read those first two parts. Because I think the the third section of these three sections that we're going to read explains the first two. Um, So I want to, instead of reading the first two and then explaining it with this, I actually want to start with the explanation. And so we're going to jump out of order in the way we read these verses just a little bit. Um, So we're going to start here. We're in Luke 6. I'll read... um, Let's see, 43 through, what am I going to? Um, 45. Let me find it in my text here. Okay. Uh, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. That's such a fun word to say. Uh, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of all of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of his of the heart, the mouth speaks. All right. So this is um, such a profoundly simple teaching. Um, R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, um, he said this about this specific text. I love this. He said, sometimes the teaching of Jesus is so simple that we uh, miss its profundity. The illustration drawn from life is so simple. Uh, you don't get oranges from apple trees. I love that. That's so true. It's such a simple teaching. Fruit trees. Um, they don't try to grow fruit, right? They do it because um, because that's what they are, right? Deep down, uh, they are they're fruit trees, and so on the outside, you, they produce fruit. So what what happens deep down in the roots and inside the tree affects what happens on the surface. And Jesus is saying that we human beings are the same way. Now, Socrates, if you're looking that up in your AP history book, it's under Socrates. Um, Bill and Ted joke. I think I've made that joke here before, but anyway. Uh, He taught, Socrates, he taught that, um, by the way, I just watched Bill and Ted, not as good as I remembered, but still pretty amazing. Um, He taught that sin and um, wrongdoing uh, come from just ignorance, right? It's not sin, right? He wouldn't call it sin. He would call them mistakes. And so he believes that the answer, believed, I guess, the answer to sin or wrongdoing was more education. And so this is why he had his Socratic method where he would go around and ask questions and, um, you know, try to get at the root of what people were thinking and trying to educate. Um, In talking about fruit, though, the way Jesus poses this, he's saying it's basically the opposite. He's saying something very different. He says sin is not a surface level problem. Sin uh, goes down to the roots, right? And, And then it flows, it starts in the roots and it flows in every area of our lives. And so do you see how this is going to change the context of what we're talking about here as we read the Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, the parallel in Matthew, right? Jesus is not telling his disciples here how to become a tree. 
he's telling them what fruit trees look like. And this is the gospel pitch then, right? Is ha- like, this is the gospel story. How then do we become trees? That's There's other parts of the Bible that really illustrate that well um, and talk about that. And the way to do it is to surrender your life to Jesus, to admit that on my own, I have no way out of this mess of sin that I'm in. I was born a sinner and I'll die a sinner. And unless somebody steps in and does something for me, I'm absolutely done. And this is what Jesus came to do. This is what the cross is all about. This is, that's the pinnacle of the gospel story, right? Is the death and resurrection of Jesus in our place so that we then can be given new hearts so that our our inner sin can be transformed and we can become children of God. And that's such a wonderful truth. And once you have that new heart, once you've been transformed into the fruit tree, What is it that the fruit looks like? That's what this sermon is about. So now we're going to jump back, knowing that that kind of explains these two uh, other sections of um, the sermon. Um, We'll we'll get a better picture here. So we'll start here in verse 27. So we're going to jump from 45 back to verse 27. Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Okay, so um, normally... um, uh, Understanding Greek is not really a necessity to understanding the Bible. Our translations are fantastic, and our translations were put together by people who know Greek a lot better than I do. But every now and again, there's a word in Greek or in English that, you know, a little explanation is helpful. Um, And this is one of those places. So C.S. Lewis actually wrote a really great book, if you ever want to read it. It's called The Four Loves. And each section of that book, there's four sections, each section talks about um, the four Greek words... um, for love that we see in the scriptures. So the the three that are not used here, there's the word um, uh, phileo, which is like, you know, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's that's what this is. It's brotherly love, friendship. Um, then there's eros, where we get the word erotic. This is um, erotic, romantic love. Um, then there's storge or storgi, uh, which is like a family love, um, you know, the love you have for your, your clan, your people. Um, and... Uh, uh, Anyway, uh, so the, those are the three that are not used here. This word, though, is the Greek word agape. And what agape means is, um, it's a word that was kind of taken on by the New Testament especially. It means universal, unconditional love. And the best place that we have to see this love is when we look to how um, God loves us completely and unconditionally. Right? That's that agape love. And now, um, back to the, the context idea. We have to remember Uh, As we're talking about this love your enemy stuff, we have to remember uh, who was the original audience and who the teacher was. So the audience here was this wide group of people in Israel in the first century, um, most of whom uh, uh, grew up with with the Torah, grew up with uh, reading their scriptures. you know, I, they grew up with reading the Torah like we grew up watching TV. You know how I still remember all the cartoons and shows from when I was a kid? That's how these people remembered the Torah. Now, the teacher was uh, Jesus. Do you remember Jesus as a boy in the temple, schooling, you know, answering questions and just amazing the teachers uh, of the law there in the temple? That's who Jesus was. He grew up just absolutely uh, soaked in scripture. And so, His teaching here, he's not just showing up and randomly teaching. Here's a bunch of ideas I think that you should follow. He's teaching a bunch of people who grew up just completely soaked in the the, the Torah. And he's a teacher who's 
exactly the same. And so it's less obvious in Luke's telling because Luke, his this book was written to Theophilus, who's probably not Jewish, and um, to more of a um, Roman or Greek audience, right? A Hellenized audience. The book of Matthew, though, was written more towards uh, Jewish people. And so in Matthew, he makes it a lot more obvious where Jesus says constantly, right, you've heard it said, meaning you know the scriptures, but I say to you, let me expound on those scriptures. And so this teaching here where Jesus says, love your enemies, it's not pulled out of thin air. He's expounding on a passage in the Torah. It's Leviticus 19. Um, Let me click here. It says, um, you shall not take vengeance, uh, or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So Jesus here is expounding, uh, expanding on that teaching. Um, D.A. Carson says this, and this is important. D.A. Carson preached a pretty phenomenal sermon. If I have it in my Bible software, I don't know where else I can find it, but um, if I find the link, I'll throw it in the Version app. Um, D.A. Carson says this, the issue is not whether public justice is mandated. The context of Leviticus 19, the issue, is entirely personal vengeance. This is not um, uh, impugning the area of justice, right? Uh, This is about, he's saying, this is about vengefulness. Um, That's important, right? Because context is king. What is Jesus talking about here? We we don't want to take these sayings of Jesus and apply them to a context where he did not intend them to be implied. And so what D.A. Carson says here is this is not, um, you know, this is not a a mandate for the government. This is, you know, this is, he's talking specifically about personal personal vengeance. The human heart is the opposite. Um, The human heart wants revenge, right? We want to um, we want to um, pay people back, get our enemies. We want to defeat our enemies. Um, I never thought I'd quote Joseph Stalin during a sermon, but this is what he said. And this is, he, he pretty much sums up the human heart. To choose one's victims, to prepare one's plans minutely, to take uh, vengeance and then go to bed, there's nothing sweeter in the world, right? That's Stalin. That's how we all know Stalin. He was a horrible horrible person, but that's also the human heart. And if you look through history, the history of the world, that has been our attitude. And that's not what Jesus says here. So Jesus continues to talk about this though. So verse uh, 28, he says, and bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. He says, he says, we're, we're to bless our enemies, to bless those who curse us. Think about the Pabst Blue Ribbon thing, right? Uh, when we talk about that, we pray for people. Uh, we ask them about their lives. The third one, though, is we bless them. We look for ways to bless people. Um, uh, I, I, and he says here also, and we pray for them. So those two things, right? Prayer and blessing. This is where that comes from. Um, Joe Carter, who's a pastor in uh, Virginia, I think he wrote a Gospel Coalition article where uh, called uh, "How to Pray: Three Ways to Pray for Your Enemies" or something like that. And he says there's three big ideas, and when we pray for our enemies, the first is that we pray for their conversion. So we ask the Lord to reach in and touch their hearts the same way He did for us. The second thing that He says is pray that their evil may be restrained. So praying for our enemies does not mean that we just constantly ignore everything that they do and just let them you know, let evil run wild as a society. That's not what we're supposed to do. Um, And then the third thing is to pray that they will receive divine justice if they refuse to repent. So pray for God, pray for justice to happen, right? And so there's other ways to pray for your enemies too, but I like those three. You know, that's a good kind of starting point. Um, And here's the thing about praying for your enemies though. Um, Praying for your enemies will change your heart as much as it'll make any sort of difference in them. 
um, it's really hard to hate somebody that you're praying for constantly. And so when Jesus says kingdom people pray for their enemies, part of the reason we do that is because uh, he uses our prayer for them to change our attitudes about them. And so now he gives two more practical uh, examples of how this, what this love looks like. Verse 29, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. So again, as we're talking about context, um, I don't think that this, this turn the other cheek is where he starts, right? We all know this verse. It's not a basis for just uh, is not a basis for pacifism. Um, some people take this verse and they apply it universally, right? To apply uh, to to get to a pacifist position where we should never go to war, do all this stuff. Um, but that ignores this tension that we see in the Bible between humility and gentleness, but also uh, but, uh, with justice, right? And and putting things right. And the Bible has a lot to say about justice and standing up for justice against those who do evil. And so I don't believe that this command to turn the other cheek is a universal prohibition against self-defense or defending others, right? Imagine a world with no police to come to your defense. Imagine a world without the allies uh, landing in, uh, you know, uh, Normandy to stop the Holocaust and to stop Nazi Germany. Um, if you want to get to a pacifist position from Scripture, I think you have to go about it a different way. I don't think that you can, this verse does not kind of muster up. Um, so what is Jesus saying then? Well, think about what he says here. If somebody slaps you on the cheek. Uh, you don't really slap somebody to hurt them necessarily, right? If you want to hurt somebody, uh, I had brothers growing up, right? And we learned how to hurt each other. What do you do? You chop somebody in the throat. That's the one of the more important ones. Uh, kick them in the groin, uh, poke the eyes, uh, put a doorknob in a tube sock. Okay, we never did that, but I'm sure that that would hurt, right? There are a lot of better ways um, to hurt somebody than to slap them. Jesus uses the slap on the cheek as an illustration on purpose. It's more of an insult um, than it is a than it is a painful you know, attack. Um, I'll tell you a story. When I was younger, there was a kid in my class uh, at, at in junior high where Melissa and I went, and he really didn't like me. And uh, part of the reason was because um, uh, he really liked Melissa, and he wanted to go out with Melissa, and she was my girlfriend at the time, right? And so, you know, I mean, as much as a 13-year-old has a girlfriend or whatever. But anyway, we were in seventh grade, sixth or seventh grade or something. Anyway, one day, <clears throat> me and him, this kid, were always getting into it, and um, I was making fun of him because I was a horrible, mean little kid, and, uh, you know, in front of the class, and I, I was really an awful little kid. And he said, um, you know, he went into his whole, meet me at the flagpole at three o'clock kind of thing you know, after school. And I was really afraid because this kid was a lot bigger than me. I was a pretty small little kid. And so this whole crowd gathered, you know, for the big fight. And um, he starts swinging. And pretty pretty quickly, I realized uh, I can duck all these punches because I'm a lot faster. I was a really quick little athletic kid, but I was small. And so I would duck out of the way and then I would just slap him in his face. Um, and so I knew I, I knew I couldn't hurt him, but he was twice, cause, you know, he's twice my size, but I was fast enough that I could, I knew I could humiliate him and maybe get out of this beating that was fast approaching that way. And so, 
that's what happened. And everybody laughed and he stormed off and I was an awful little kid. And then a week later, I made fun of him some more and then he hit me with a chair and we both got suspended uh, because, again, we were fallen and sinful little kids. Um, the point being, when I was slapping him, it wasn't meant to actually hurt him. It was meant to insult him. And that's how that was my out of this fight. If I insult him enough, he'll get embarrassed and leave. That's pretty much what Jesus is talking about here is that the uh, the slap is meant to be more of like a public insult. Um, there's also a possible second level here of context. Um, uh, we've talked before about the synagogue community, and being a part of the synagogue was being a part of Jewish life and being a part of uh, the Jewish community. And so if you were a member of the synagogue, you were in good standing. But a lot of people were thrown out of synagogues. People like tax collectors, like Matthew, would have been thrown out of a synagogue. Um, we think Paul was probably thrown out of a few synagogues, right? And so part of the ceremony where they would throw you out of the synagogue was a public, they'd stand you up and they would slap you in front of everybody, right in the face. And um, Jesus went on trial in front of the high priest and his illegal trial before the crucifixion. And that's one of the things that happened is while he was on trial there, somebody slapped him. And a lot of people think that that might be connected. And so for a Jewish disciple, you know, for these, these Jewish disciples of Jesus who are going to go out, they're going to get tossed out of these synagogues. Humiliation is coming. Um, they're going to get thrown out. It's going to happen. And so in these moments where you're insulted publicly like this, with that actual kind of context in mind, do you see what Jesus really is saying? Um, Tim Keller put this so brilliantly. He's saying, there has to be a spirit in my followers that is very different from what, uh, from, uh, what is the normal, normal to the human heart. The spirit is full of concern for justice, but of no concern for your image, for saving face, for your ego. He's saying, my followers... Uh, are not concerned about how they look. They're not concerned about uh, personal affronts. They're passionate for justice, but they go about it without the slightest bit of vindictiveness or vengeful, uh, vengefulness or spite. So when you're thrown out of the synagogues, when you're insulted, you don't respond the same way the world does, right? the fruit trees, right? The kingdom people are going to respond with a completely different attitude. It says, I'm passionate about justice, but I'm not obsessed with myself to the point where I have to answer every insult and I have to fight back when I'm insulted and I have to stand up for my for my name or whatever, right? We don't have to do that, right? We leave that to Jesus. So that's the first illustration. The second illustration is to give them your tunic too, right? So um, back in the day, Nobody ever opened their closet and then wondered what to wear, right? Everybody had one, maybe two things of clothing, two different outfits or whatever. Uh, they had a cloak, which was like the, the jacket, long, almost like a dress kind of thing that they would wear, which they would also double as a blanket at night. It would keep them warm. The tunic then, the second part, was an undergarment. Um, it was like a... Like a I don't even know how to describe it. A long, like, usually thin linen kind of thing that you would wear underneath. And Jesus is prepping them, right? He's saying, look, you guys are going to get slapped. You're going to get insulted and tossed out of these synagogues. You also might be in situations where somebody takes your jacket, which is also your blanket, to try to force you to suffer. And how do you respond in those situations? Do you want my tunic too, right? I don't want you to be cold. When, when mocked, you respond with love. That's what Jesus is saying. Um, and then the third illustration is uh, giving to beggars. So the third illustration of, this is the third illustration of what it means to love your enemies, right? Turn the, so we have turn the other cheek, we have um, give them your, your underwear and your jacket, and then the third one is to give. Now, how far do we take this? 
the context here seems to be borrowing and lending. Um, Tim Keller in the Generous Justice book that we all read together, do you remember he talked about sometimes just blanketly giving people money is not the best way to help them. Um, uh, we also talked about this in The Art of Neighboring as we read that. Sometimes there's a difference between being responsible to someone and for someone. Uh, and we just talked about that a few weeks ago. But here's the principle. And I love the way the ESV Study Bible puts this. Um, be generous to a fault. That's what it says. That's how it describes this. Look, there are no rules about, uh, in this situation, you have to always give everything that you have. Because in church history, that's not really how they've lived. Um, there's just this principle that's laid out, and that's a really good way to summarize it. Be generous to a fault. And then we, the followers of Jesus who are connected to him, right? We are the fruit trees. We live that out with wisdom. Be generous. Here's what you should do. And if you're asking, well, how much do I have to give as the bare minimum? You're asking the wrong question, right? The the question is, how can I be so generous that people outside the kingdom of God look at me and go, what an idiot. That's how generous we should be. Followers of a king um, should should help people out with real needs, not expecting payment in return, expecting nothing back from them. We don't lend money to get it back. We lend money because our king is generous. And so we have love your enemies. We have these illustrations. And then verse 31, Jesus says this, that one of the more famous verses than he ever, his famous teachings, the golden rule. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now, let me explain to you what a chiasm is. It's kind of an important term. As you're reading the Bible, um, it, it's, uh, it's sort of, I don't know, rhyming ideas, I guess you would say. And uh, one of the, this is a chiasm here. So there's the A line, is, I'll put it in the, uh, right here, uh -huh. I'll put a little uh, slide or something. Um, the, the A line is love your enemies. And then he explains that with three lines uh, or three ideas, right? Turn the other cheek, give them your undies too, uh, be generous to a fault. And then he goes back and, um, and brackets it again with another A line. So uh, the, the love explained again, and this is the golden rule, um, you know, do unto others as you would have them do to you, right? Um, there's actually though, as you read scholarly works, people say, well, Jesus didn't even make this up. He stole this from everybody else. The golden rule does show up in other areas as well, uh, other philosophies and religions. Um, in rabbinic writings, Greek philosophy, Hinduism, Buddhism, they all had the same idea, but all of them placed it in the negative. Um, it was the negative way to say it. So don't do to people what you wouldn't want them to do to you. Jesus spins it. So not just avoid doing things to people, but actively loving them. Do to other people what you would want them to do to you. This is all encompassing. And um, our boys, when they came to us um, as foster parents, um, you know, they didn't have a lot of uh, church background or, um, you know, without getting into it a lot. And so one of the first things, this was probably the first thing about the faith that I taught them um, was what kind of people are we as followers of Jesus? We This is what we want to do. We want to love people. And I say this to them a lot, like, hey, what's the golden rule, guys? You know, when they're fighting and bickering and we talk about it, you know, do to others, you know, well, yeah, it's because it's a really good rule. Um, and so we actually talk about the golden rule a lot in our house. We say, look, we want to follow and love Jesus. And this is one of the ways, um, you know, that we get to do that is by actively uh, loving each other. And uh, all right, he continues on. So that's the golden rule. Um, now he continues explaining this love. Verse 32. Uh, he says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those 
who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend from those with whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners uh, to get back the same amount. Okay, so he says next that we're we're supposed to be different. Inside the kingdom of God, Hearts, uh, the hearts of the people inside the kingdom are supposed to be different from hearts of the people outside the kingdom. His followers, followers of Jesus, are not supposed to look like everybody else. And so Jesus says, look, everybody loves their friends and their family and then hates their enemies. That's natural. But what Jesus is saying is what you're doing is not natural. It's supernatural. Love your families, sure. Love your friends, sure. Love the giants, of course. But also love your enemies when it doesn't benefit you at all. Love your enemies, even more than that, when it costs you something. And then he continues that thought in verse uh, 35 and 36, kind of wrapping up this section. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be, this is the key, you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So, um... Don't forget the context again. What's the context here, right? The idea is uh, fruit. We're talking about fruit. This is what fruit trees look like. So what does it mean to be a a child of God? Um, Again, the ESV study Bible, my favorite study Bible, has this great note. It says, you will be sons does not mean that you will become sons, but you will demonstrate that you are sons by imitating God's care and compassion, even for those who are evil. So basically, you don't do this stuff. You don't love your enemies to get into the kingdom. You don't love your enemies to become a fruit tree. You do it because you already are. The new heart that you receive when you're brought into the kingdom means um, that the process to change who you are has begun. God changes you to be more like him. And what is he like? He's kind to the ungrateful, the evil. He's merciful. Now, as you read that, as you looked at this, maybe you thought to yourself, wow, I'm really glad that God is merciful to all those other ungrateful sinners. And that's a terrible take. Here's a better take. Uh, Treat people the way that God treated you. See, when he talks about the ungrateful and the evil, when he's merciful to sinners, he's talking about you. He's talking about people who are now inside the kingdom that didn't used to be. You are the ungrateful. You're the evil one. And yet God still had mercy on you. You deserved his wrath and he offered you mercy. And now, if you really are his child, if you, if you are going to inherit his kingdom, you extend that same attitude to the people around you. That attitude of mercy and not of condemnation and revenge right, is... Um, also the context for our next idea. So we're going to keep going next. um, Here's our third section. So we did the tree and the fruit first, then we read about love. Now we're going to read about judgment. So we're going to start here in verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, Running over will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to use. Now, this is the most popular verse of the Bible for people who don't know anything about the Bible. Uh, Don Carson says, nobody knows in that sermon. He says, nobody knows where it's found, but everybody can quote it. Um, And this is how this verse is used, right? Judge not, in the King James, right? Judge not, lest ye be judged. Um, People quote that all the time to say, the Bible teaches universal acceptance of any behavior. And uh, so, like, I'm doing something that I want to do that other people think is wrong. And so my answer to that is, well, judge not lest ye be judged. Right? That's what the Bible says. But remember, we were just 
told by Jesus, well, I mean, it's the next part of scripture, the context here is that you can tell what kind of person somebody is by the fruit in their life. You can look at the fruit. The outside stuff tells us what's going on on the inside. And so what is Jesus saying here? Well, you have to look at the whole verse, right? That's important. There's a difference between looking at the fruit of somebody's life out of love and concern and talking to them about that fruit versus looking at somebody with self-righteous sort of a condemnation, a judgmental attitude. And this is the key to verse 37. You have to read the whole verse. Look at it from both sides, right? He says, he says a few things. First, he says, don't judge. Then he says, don't condemn. Then he says, forgive. This is a common literary method that's taken straight out of the Psalms. Say something one way, say the same thing, just slightly different, and then say it again to clarify. So you're saying the same idea three different ways. And so he's not condemning, sorry, he's not uh, condoning universal acceptance, right? He's speaking against a self-righteous judgment that condemns other people who have wronged you and refuses to forgive. And so there's, there's two sides, right? There's two ways to go about this. There's uh, forgiveness or condemnation and judgment. And kingdom people have to be forgiving, right? This self-righteous judgment uh, always takes the low road, right? It usually talks about the other person, not to the other person. Um, generally, the point of that self-righteous condemnation is to make me feel better by tearing somebody else down. It's not gracious to those who have harmed me, right? It doesn't show mercy. But love, kingdom love that comes as a fruit of the Spirit does a few things, We'll actually go up to somebody and we'll talk to them. We'll build relationships. It's motivated by genuine concern for the other person. It wants what's best for the other person instead of for me. It's overflowing with grace and mercy, especially if this person has hurt me in some way. It understands the difference between um, sin and personal preference. Right? I've really seen this abused in churches where we talk this like condemnation language about stuff that really doesn't matter. It's not sinful things. It's just personal preferences. Um, this attitude of, of, of uh, kingdom love, right? It, re it really understands also the difference between believers and unbelievers. How we handle the fruit in somebody's life is a big difference if they're inside or they're outside the kingdom. And I've seen the American church make that mistake as well. Um, trying to force fruit onto dead trees. Okay, so those are our three sections, right? Um, I, it would have been, one part of me really wanted to do all three of those sections separately um, and to talk even more. There were a lot of things I didn't get to say that I really would have liked to say, um, but I think uh, all three of those sections really um, fit together like a puzzle piece. And so if we take just one of them, you know, it, I liked taking them all together because uh, I think they really speak um, about each other, each of those three sections. And so um, to end, let me just give you now a few ideas, uh, just a couple of kind of closing thoughts. Um, the first idea is this, that your attitude matters just as much as your actions. Do you see that in the main thrust of this passage? Inside the kingdom of God, um, with changed hearts comes a changed outlook on the world. Uh, our attitudes are changed. So a lot of what Jesus is talking about here isn't just actions, although it is that, right? Uh, actions are important, but underneath the actions are the attitude. And it starts with your attitude and your outlook. So one of the things that we really don't want to do, and this brings us to our second point, is we don't want to have the actions, but not the outlook. And so loving people um, starts 
inside before it flows to the outside. So uh, this brings us to our second point. If you don't see this kind of fruit in your life, you you have to attack the root. This is very important. Um, Paul uh, Paul David Tripp, uh, who's a pastor, he I think I just saw a quick little thing he did about this, um, and uh, maybe I'll find this and link to it too. But he he did a sermon I think it was called or taught where he talked about what we can't do is be fruit staplers, right? He says, imagine if you take a dead piece of wood and uh, you stand it up straight and you go to the grocery store and you, you buy a bunch of apples and you take the apples and you staple them to the piece of wood. Do you have a fruit tree? No, right? You have a dead piece of wood and disgusting stapled fruit. But that's a lot of church people. This is what they do. They say, oh, Jesus says, love our enemies. And so if I want to get into the kingdom, that's how I have to do it. I have to love my enemies, even though I don't really want to. But but the fruit part of this passage says that's completely wrong. The fruit part of this passage says you have to start at the root of what a tree is. So how do you do that then? Don't be somebody who just staples fruit to a dead tree. You have to be a tree that comes back to life. And you do that by coming to Jesus. Let me mix some metaphors here with what Jesus said uh, in John 15. He says, look, I'm the vine and you are the branches. So I've been telling you all along that you're a fruit tree, but in another place, mixing metaphors again, Jesus Jesus says, you're not the whole tree, right? You're just the branch that's then connected to Jesus. And I love that too. Fruit comes naturally from, the fruit in kingdom lives comes naturally from our connection to Jesus. And so the stronger connection we have, the healthier the fruit, the healthier of um, a branch that we will be. So how do we do that though? How do we strengthen um, our connection to the Lord? Um a lot of I've had this question over the years from a lot of different people counseling and just having chats with people about faith and I hate to say this I do but it's true look there's no magic formula we just do the basic christian stuff the stuff that god has given us these means of grace that god has given us to grow closer to him so we we read and study. Can you guys hear that? That's our neighbor kids screaming. Wow, that's really loud. Anyway, uh, we do the basics. We read and study our Bibles with prayerful hearts. Uh, we pray for our own spiritual lives. We pray for our enemies. Uh, we fast. We we meet together, which is hard during COVID. Uh, we encourage one another. We just do all this basic stuff that God has given us uh, to connect ourselves to uh, to to Him. Right, the the actual roots. Um, and here's the third, the third and final closing idea. If you're if you're watching this and you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, you're not a follower of our King. Look, these are great attributes to strive to, but um, without a connection to the vine, uh, you are pushing a rock up a hill. So love your enemies, right? Be generous to a fault, uh, be merciful, forgive. Look, this is not human nature in our fallen state. In our fallen state, we should defeat our enemies. We should be greedy and protect our own. We should exact revenge and not mercy. And now you may think that love and mercy and forgiveness and generosity are noble attributes. Uh, You may try to achieve them from time to time, but my guess is that you're always going to have a rough go at it. Your sinful heart is always going to step up, it's going to kick in, and it's going to get in your way. So what's the way forward? You have to let Jesus love you first. Let him be merciful to you first. Let him forgive you for your sin. Let him show you what real generosity is. And when that happens, you're brought into the kingdom. You're given a new heart. Your life is slowly transformed. And then you turn around and you do the same thing to all the people around you. We can't mix up the order, though. 
We don't love our enemies to get into the kingdom. We're not generous to a fault to get into the kingdom. We're not forgiving and humble to get into the kingdom. We do all those things because we're part of the kingdom, because Jesus already did those things for us. And if we mess that order up, we're going to be in a world of trouble. But if we get that right, we can be the kind of church that Jesus uses to change the lives of the people around us through the way that we, we love them. Amen? Let's pray. So, Lord, we're thankful that you loved us first. We're thankful that you were gracious to us first, that you were generous to a fault, right, at the cost of your own life to bring us into your kingdom. And so now, Lord, uh, now that we're here, now that we're, we're in your kingdom, um, we ask that you would just help us to, um, to do the same, to do what you've done for us to the people around us, that you would help us to love our neighbors and to, to serve them and to be humble and gentle and generous and just all this stuff that we talked about today. And we look forward, Lord, to a time where our sin is uh, removed, the stain is completely taken away, the rot is gone, and we are in the new heavens and new earth with you and with your people in your kingdom where this is what life will look like every day, generosity and love. So we just ask that you would sustain us until till then and help us to live this kind of life. We thank you so much. We love you so much. Amen.